If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. In this week's episode, we are so lucky to be joined by audio engineer and audiobook director Samuel Wilkins. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you today? Hello, John. Yes, I'm all right. Thank you. And uh, i am uh, just uh, warmed my voice up and I'm ready to go. And uh, as you may have, uh, well, you may not notice, we both have the same microphones. <laughs> we do. We do. I swapped mine out just so we'd match. <laughs> we're yeti friends <laughs> as is uh, tradition on the show um i'd love to start right at the beginning would you be able to tell us a little about your background a little about yourself and how you came into the world of audio and audiobooks well i grew up with audio from a very early age as i'm completely blind mm-hmm. so audio was pretty much a medium I listened to all the time, or I should say audiobooks were a medium I listened to quite a lot of the time. Of course, I also listened to audio dramas as well, some of the BBC ones, but also ones by other uh, organisations at the time, such as uh, such as Hodder and Children's, uh, done by Mike Carrington Wood, and also Rainbow Theatre when they did their audio productions. And mm-hmm. of course, I always, I was very well known for rewinding and playing back bits on cassettes because I wanted to know how are they doing these things and I was trying to (laughs) analyze them and so when I was in secondary school I did music uh, GCSE and I was very good at it and I wanted to do music production and to that end in university I got a degree in live and studio sound and did quite a few projects which I'm very proud of including doing an album, or I should say an EP, with binaural audio and convolution reverb. Binaural audio, for those who are not familiar, is 3D sound using headphones. So it's like surround sound, but you don't need a whole lot of speakers. And so, and convolution reverb is reverb that's based around actual sound. So you take a sample of an actual venue, say your favorite church or a concert hall or whatever, and you do that by bursting a balloon or using a starting pistol or similar, and then it uses an algorithm to replicate that sound. So you could even do binaural reverb with that. Yeah. I also did things such as adding music and sound effects to excerpts from audiobooks and radio dramas. For example, I added some music and sound effects to an excerpt of Jurassic Park, read by William Roberts. Sadly, that uh, audiobook's no longer available, but it was a great sample to work with. Mm. And after that, I started looking for jobs in music, but then I realised, after a bit, that I would have to use things such as auto-tune, which I wasn't sure was accessible, and I also found that they wanted very tight turnarounds. And, and of course, with, with blindness, mm. turnarounds, tight turnarounds are not always the best option because it takes longer to do things when you can't see. And I realized that I was more interested in speech production than music. So I thought I'd go into audiobook production or audio drama, which, mm. uh, and audio drama is one of the passions I really have. I'd love to go into audio drama. And 
Then what I did was I applied for several jobs and I managed to get a shadowing opportunity with the RNIB where I shadowed a producer. I shadowed Garrick Hagen actually and it was a great experience shadowing him. And I also got to do some other bits and I've been working mainly at the moment with the Torch Trust which is a charity that provides Christian audiobooks for those who are blind or partially sighted. These are read by volunteers and I've been editing the books so I've been doing things such as noise reduction because they're using they're not using professional equipment because they're volunteers so I use mm-hmm. noise reduction and I take out tongue clicks and loud breaths or reduce the loud breaths so that they're still there and I also make sure that there are no mistakes or I should say as few mistakes as there there can be so I get rid of those mistakes or I write down what needs redoing and so I'm looking to get professional work and it was about last year about this time last year probably a bit earlier that I started on the Sunday schmooze on Clubhouse which is an audio only social network with Neil Gardner and Morrison Ellis who have both been on this podcast yeah and the three and I hit it off with them straight away we got on like a house on fire and I discovered that Neil and I have a similar sense of humour. In <laughs> fact, one day I said to him, uh, I'm sorry I couldn't be on the last Sunday schmooze as I was away. I only wish I could say I was sorry I can't be on this one. <laughs> and he knew I was joking and played along by saying, how rude. <laughs> but that's pretty much where I'm at now. Yeah, that sounds great. There's lots of things that I want to ask you about. Um, that do you think? So you've mentioned sort of listening to audiobooks and audio dramas, uh, you know, for a very long time. Were you always kind of certain, as well as music, as well? Were you always certain that you wanted to be a part of the production of those mediums? Well, yes, I did because I had wanted to do speech production. In fact, I did do a bit of speech in my university where I recorded a children's audiobook. Um, of the daughter of one of the English lecturers. And it was a great experience. I was able to tell her when she made a mistake. And I was also able to negotiate with the author. Uh, or I should say the author was the daughter and the reader was the mum. Mm. And so I was able to negotiate with them on things such as rights and sound effects, etc. But... Uh, I did want to do speech production as well as music production because I just like the production side of it. I'm not really keen on, well, I am keen, but I felt that my forte wasn't really in the narration or the actual playing of music because I actually, in fact, I produced for the Torch Trust a best practice guide on audiobook reading. And I realized when I was doing that, that the outtakes were so frequent that I thought, oh my gosh, I better stick to directing. Because <laughs> the thing is, I was reading in Braille, and the fact is, when reading in Braille, you have to, you, you can't read, you can't scan read a line. You have to scan, you have to read, I should say, word by word. So you can't read several words ahead. If you try to do that and read out loud, you're going to lose yourself. Yeah, yeah, and of course. It's very slow. And it means you can easily make mistakes. For example, you can say things the wrong way round because you think you know what's coming up and then you find that's not the case. 
I mean, you should hear my outtakes. I ended up saying things such as, the accent tab channel, ah, accent tag, not accent tab, you stupid man. And cut one of the legs, no. And at one point I said, no, it's the other way around. You see what I have to put up with? <laughs> and even, just so you know, folks, I have to do this sentence about 50 times and I'm really <laughs> mad about it. That's okay. What about um, what about directing audio stood out to you specifically about what about directing stood out to you, do you think? Well, the reason I like directing is because it means you can have a part to play in the audiobook production process, but you're not actually doing the reading and you're working with someone because you're sitting in front of someone or I should say in front of the glass and someone's looking at you. Or if you're doing it over clean feed or Zoom, you've got someone on the other end. And it means you can actually read along with the person and you can spot mistakes and you can actually tell them if there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And it just provides a second set of ears. And it means that you are the one who's actually... And a lot of directors cast the books. And that's one of the things I also like. I've actually put together a file of readers that I would use. And I've connected with a lot of people on LinkedIn. Doing that is actually a very good op a very good idea because it means you get to know these people and you can actually call on them if you need to. In, fa as, in fact, uh, with directing, one thing I like to do is I sometimes role play with actors mm. where they pretend to read and I pretend to direct them and I provide feedback on them or I should say feedback to them. And I also ask them to do things such as pretend that you're a really nervous reader and you don't know what to do, or that you're, you're a veteran who doesn't like being given direction and you resent it. And I also say, for example, pretend that you are reading something and you're not comfortable with it. Mm. That way it means that I can actually hone, I can hone my skills. I can, I can work with these people, hone the skills, and get to know them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I try to do as well when directing is to make sure that I tell the person, now please let me know, are there any books you are not comfortable reading or any boundaries you're not uh, that you have? For example, if you don't like reading multiple sex scenes, that mm -hmm. can be a boundary. The type of books I'd like to direct are Christian books, crime thrillers, children and young adult books. And I also like a bit of nonfiction, although Christian books do class as nonfiction. Yeah, a nice, a nice group there, a nice uh, a plethora of different title opportunities you mentioned networking and how that's um, a really you know important thing for a director and having you know getting narrators on file to you know for future projects etc now one way of networking now we actually met during a, a clubhouse live show at the sunday schmooze um as you've mentioned um now that's a great place to network and connect what impact has clubhouse made on you especially in connecting with other audiobook professionals it's made a big impact. In fact, it's really made me feel as though I'm part of a community when mm. I am talking to the people there. And it's, although a lot of the people are from the US, it's still a great thing to have because mm. 
it means that you get encouragement from them. I mean, Neil and Morrison are desperate for me to get into the job, to get into the industry. Mm -hmm. they, they are trying very hard. And I really appreciate that. It's really great that they're trying hard. And I hope soon I can work with them. I could just imagine because Neil does a lot of Christian books, as you may know. Yeah. And I could just imagine he actually made a joke that he would sometimes say Christ Jesus. And if he does that, I'd say Neil, <laughs> because I know that it's supposed to be Jesus Christ. Yeah. But Clubhouse has really made a big impact, as so has LinkedIn, because that has allowed me to connect with people who might not be on Clubhouse, because, of course, Clubhouse is still relatively new. Yeah. And it does allow me to connect with other people, such as I connected with William Hope, uh, Mena Boncells. She's a great person to talk to. And... Um, Jonathan Davis in the US, who's done a lot of the Star Wars books. Yeah. And uh, a lot of others. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Davis. Um, I've, uh, I think he's just one of, the, one of the absolute best, especially over in the US. He's just fantastic. Um, the production process, of course, may differ um, from the next person. Could you, could you perhaps talk us through your directing process and perhaps some of the accessibility barriers you experience in audio production? Well, what I tend to do, first off, if I'm given a directing job, mm -hmm. I will talk to the narrator and I will ask them about the book and, and make sure that they're on track with what is necessary. And I'll make sure that I tell them I'm here to help you, not to boss you about. <laughs> and I'll then ask for a copy of the script in Microsoft Word document format or RTF. That way, it means that I can read along with the book when the narrator's reading it. And it also allows me to prepare. Now, because I won't be marking up using colours or anything, I will just be reading the book over and over, or rather, I will read it once for pleasure, then I'll do a more critical read later on and look up pronunciations, etc., before the actual recording. And I will, I will contact the narrator and ask them if there are any problems that they have with the book, or if there's anything they don't understand beforehand, before the recording, that is. And then when they then when they come in, I will I will read along because I have a device called a Braille Sense, which is a Braille tablet, yeah. and I can read along with the book as they're reading. And then I will, if there's a mistake, I will mark up with a not sign, and that is a, for those who are interested, it's a shift and grave accent sign or grave accent sign, which is just next to the one. And in Braille, the reason I use that is because it's easy to find and it means that the editor can easily notice it because it's a punctuation symbol that doesn't appear anywhere else in the book, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> and it's easy for editors who can't see. In fact, I should say I've tried editing. In fact, I do editing for the Torch Trust. Mm. And I find editing is good, but the thing is it does take a long time with doing that because I don't use Reaper for editing. I could use Reaper for recording, but editing is another story because when you edit in a lot of these doors, they rely on you having to use uh, the, the mouse. Mm -hmm. And of course, the only other way of doing it is by doing it by time, which is very slow. 
I mean, try doing that. Uh, try doing that professionally when you've got a tight deadline, having to edit completely by time. <laughs> so, yeah. I do that. I do the editing with the. Uh, I, I use gold, and so I use Goldway for editing. That way, it means that I can do a start and end marker on bits I want to get rid of, and then mm-hmm. delete them or silence them. In fact, it's like using a, an old tape machine. To oh, right. Tape. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but one thing to remember, if you want to use a blind editor or partially sighted editor, remember it will take them longer to edit because it can take, 50, it can take an hour to edit 15 minutes of audio. Because remember, we can't see the screen. We have to rely completely on our ears. Hmm. I mean, I've actually challenged a couple of editors, Steve Croft and Dean Allison, who are great editors, to try editing an audiobook when they are with, with, the, with the screen off and only with a keyboard. And they've actually said, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Or I should say, we, we couldn't imagine doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And when directing, I prefer directing to editing because... You're actually working with someone. You're not just sitting on your own. Hmm. And with directing, I will sometimes add humor in. For example, when I was doing a role play with reading a book, uh, a Christian book, one of the lines was, it's painful to watch some of the X Factor auditions. And the narrator said, Axe Factor. And I said, oh, Axe Factor, is that a reality television show involving lumberjacks? (laughs) I like to add humor into these things. And sometimes I say, Sorry, it sounds like you said you said dream instead of dream. And at one point I said, sorry, you said one. It sounded like you said one Fred of mine instead of one friend. And he said, oh, I love Fred. (laughs) (laughs) So as you see, I I try to add a bit of humor to the directing process, uh, but I'd love to do more directing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also it helps as well. It can be, you know, narrating an audio, but can be, you know, sort of awfully, occasionally a little bit tedious uh, and tiring, obviously, with it, you know, long recording days and such. So I think that adding that level of personality in there is a must. It just helps the whole, you know, situation. It puts the narrator at ease and things like that. Um, Save the outtakes if possible. Because <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it would be good to have more outtakes at the end of audiobooks so, you, so listeners can actually see what happens. Yeah. And one thing I also do is I will tell, I'd, I'd speak to the narrator and tell them, because I can't see you, you need to be a bit more verbose with me. So tell me if you're not feeling comfortable about something because I can't see your face. <laughs> We were um, we were speaking before about the RNIB um, and opportunities they and other organisations um, may advertise, and I thought you had some really valuable insight about this topic. Would you um, be able to share your thoughts with us about this? Certainly. The RNIB, as with other disability charities, are still companies or still businesses, mm-hmm. and so they have to operate within business recruitment law and employment law. So even though they're non-profits, they still have to operate as though they are for profit organizations when it comes to employment. And in fact, in some ways it's even more difficult because they have to meet the expectations of their donors. So it's worth asking someone who is blind or partially sighted 
who wants to go into the production process, have you tried the RNIB or the NLS in the UK, in the US? Mm. The NLS is in the US, the RNIB is in the UK, not the other way around. <laughs> but do be prepared for them to say, yes, I have, because the RNIB is not required to employ those who can't see. In fact, they have turned me down several times, but it's understandable because there are a lot of people going for the same job of producer. Yeah. And if they were to employ every blind person, it just simply wouldn't work. They wouldn't be able to provide the money. They wouldn't have the money, I should say, to do that. And it's the same with the NLS. They cannot provide employment opportunities for anyone who is, for everyone, I should say, who is blind or partially sighted because they simply don't have the resources. Mm. So it's worth remembering that the RNIB and NLS are good starting points, but be aware that they may say no and they may not offer training opportunities because they might not have the resources to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, um, I think that's a really valuable insight and, um, and something to really keep in mind. Um, now we've spoken about the difference um, before, you know, over email before recording, um, how the difference between audio drama and audio books um, are often blurred. Now, um, People don't really know kind of where to draw the line between the two, especially as um, both mediums sort of expand and grow and um, and things like that over time. I'd love to hear your take on this and how your process adapts between the two. Well, I haven't directed any audio drama yet, although I'd love to. But one thing I will say is that audio dramas as audio books are not new. They've mm. been going around. They've been going along for some time. In fact even before BBC Radio Collection started releasing their titles as audiobooks on cassette, we had what might be considered spoken word albums, but would now be considered audiobooks, where you would have, yeah. say, a film's soundtrack recorded with narration. Mm -hmm. And they did this with MGM. And also, in the 1960s, they released those sorts of things on LPs. In fact, the uh, Century 21 record label... When, who had things such as Thunderbirds, they would actually release excerpt, they would actually release abridged versions of the stories with in-character narration, and those would have been classed at the time as spoken word albums, but now I would think they are more audiobooks. Mm. So these things have been going on for some time, and I don't think there is really a line between audio drama and audio book anymore. It's really... It's really been blurred, and I personally think with audio dramas and as audio books, it can be done, and it has been done, and it's great when you have a really good audio drama because they are people can listen to them at any time, mm. and it means that they can go onto their favorite audiobook platform and buy them. I mean, even the Doctor Who's that were considered that the missing Doctor Who episodes, Mark Ayres, who actually produced them, he classed them as audiobooks. When he had narration of the miss of the missing Doctor Who episodes with the soundtrack, he classed them as audiobooks. Yeah. 
And so it's worth remembering that audiobooks don't just mean a single voice narrative. They can also include multi-voice narratives. In fact, one of the prime examples of a multi-voice narrative is the His Dark Materials trilogy, which was directed by Garrick Hagen, who I mentioned earlier. And in that one, you have a main narrator, in this case, Philip Pullman, and all the characters are played by different actors. And that is the sort of thing I would love to try doing, directing a multicast drama like that, because I could fill it and I could actually fill in if, for example, you have a narrator recording their bits, I can fill in the actual dialogue because I I do fancy myself as a bit of a narrator, even though I wouldn't actually do it professionally. So I can provide that for them. Yeah. Absolutely, I've been uh, I've been lucky enough to be involved in uh, a full cast audiobook uh, production before, and they are so much fun. Um, you know, really just getting stuck into one character as opposed to you know narrating a set of them. It's um, yeah, it's quite it's quite addictive, really. Um, as an audiobook director, when either working with a narrator yourself or even listening to a, a, an audiobook for pleasure. What do you look for in a narrator's performance that sets them apart? Are there any certain aspects to a performance that make you think, well, this this person really knows what they're doing? Well, what I like is, because I've grown up with audio drama, I'm a bit spoiled by it. (laughs) But I like a, a narrator who can really bring an audiobook to life and make you think, I'm in the middle of the action. So I don't mean over performance, but what I do like is really going through and and using your vocal range and making it sound like you're in the middle of the action. I mean, the best readers, I think, are those who genuinely shout when you actually have lines that are shouted and really go for the emotive side, who, who really do it as a performance. Because let's face it, audiobook reading as fiction books, that is, for fiction books, is pretty much a performance. And so I I like to have them see it that way. I like a narrator who sees it as performing a book rather than reading a book because you can read a book in a very dull, emotionless voice like that. Yeah. But that's not really telling the story or performing it. Whereas I actually like to see someone, or I should say hear someone, really perform the book and put their all in to make it almost a one-man show. In fact, I've heard people doing this and I thought, Oh my gosh, in fact, that's great. In fact, when they were originally done on cassette by Chivers and other companies like that, I miss Mm. good old Chivers, they would do that. They would really put in the performance. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Have you um, any advice for narrators on how to be, you know, the perfect colleague for a director? What, What can we do to make you want to work with us again? I would say speak to us, be honest with us mm. and actually get to know us and allow us to get to know you mm-hmm. and and don't take our direction as just being bossy because sometimes directors can be a bit bossy but the idea is that we are acting as a listener and we can hear things that you can't mm-hmm. because remember, familiarity means that you miss things. Of course. I expect if you're in fact, that's what happens when you're doing an audiobook on your own. You can easily miss things. Absolutely. So that's why we have directors and editors and proofers. 
who can actually make sure that you've not missed anything. In fact, I remember one because the thing is when you're a director, when you're a director, you have to be listening out for a lot of things and you need to listen for performance and speed as well because you don't want to find if you've read a book on your own, you're told you have to read it again because it's too quick because you're speaking too fast. In fact, when I was editing a book, there was a mistake that could have been avoided if I had been directing it, which was a major mistake. <laughs> the actor, or I should say the, the volunteer who was narrating it, he had to read this sentence. Sin is not junk food, for you have to be careful how much you have, but it's fine as an occasional treat. Unfortunately, the actor missed out the word where. So it ended up saying, sin is not, a, is not junk food. Food. You have to be careful how much you have, but it's fine as an occasional treat. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, he should have. I, I think he's going to be really upset that he missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I um, yeah, it's, it's the thing, you know, if you narrated a book and it's got 120,000 words in there, you're not going to get every single one of them right or in the, you know, you're not going to get them all in the right order. You just have to accept that as part of the process. And that's, as you say, that's why directors and proofers and editors are so valuable um, and worth their weight in gold, um, I would say. Um, how could the industry be more inclusive? How can production studios and the rest of us be of use to better the accessibility issues that we currently find? Well, I think the best solution would ideally be for the companies who make the audio software plugins and hardware to make them accessible in the first place but of yeah. course that's not going to be uh, that's not going to be a reality so what we can do is the publishing industry in general could slow down to allow people who have disabilities more time to do things such as edit and proof mm -hmm. and also it's worth talking to these people talking to people who are blind and partially sighted and actually saying to them now what do you need how can we best support you because everyone's needs are going to be different because i would need a screen reader and i would need to be able to use reaper because although i could use pro tools it's very slow if the best solution would probably be reaper with or without a control surface if i have to use pro tools i would use I prefer to use a control surface with it mm -hmm. because if you don't have a control surface with Pro Tools, it can be very slow. It's doable, but it's slow. And also, I think what it requires is for the industry to lobby the audio companies who make the hardware and software to be more accessible. And it would also be good for audio production companies to get in contact with universities to ask postgrad students or third-year students to actually help those who want to set up uh, an audiobook studio or I should say set up equipment for directing or I should say for production so they can set up the equipment with them because yeah. let's face it not everyone has mum and dad to set things up for them yeah that's and very that, true yeah that is actually something that people forget that people with disabilities do not have support at their beck and call and so my one of the piece of advice that I'd, I'd have is don't pass the buck yeah 
I think that's um, I think that's quite profound. Um, yeah, I think there's there needs to be a lot more, a lot. Let's face it, a lot more thought um, to be shown um, a, a, across the whole industry, really. Yes, and another thing I'd suggest you do is give is provide positive action. Now that's different to positive discrimination. When I mean positive action, I mean provide opportunities for people who have who are blind or partially sighted to actually get a foothold in the industry. That's different to positive discrimination where you just employ someone because of a protected characteristic. I'd be a bit uncomfortable about that being employed simply because of my disability, but yeah. I don't have a problem with positive action. Yeah. No, I get that completely. I get and, that completely. And be aware, of course, that... And I'd say to blind and partially sighted directors and readers, or I should say and narrators, who are blind and partially sighted, try not to get into a competitive victimhood mentality. Mm. That is, to if you don't get the job, to start saying, my group is more discriminated against than your group, because the industry doesn't need that. In fact... It's got enough to deal with without having a victim war. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an incredible mindset to get into. And you're absolutely right, because it does no one any favours. It doesn't make you feel any better either. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I get that completely. It doesn't make it, it may make you feel better short term, but long term, mm. it doesn't do anyone any good. No, you're absolutely right. Now, talking about um, a positive impact, you mentioned there are a few people that you wanted to mention um, you wanted to give a shout out who's been uh, have had a positive impact uh, to you. Yes, you. I mean, there's been Neil and Morrison, of course, who I've mentioned already, but uh, mm. Menabon Sells has also been a great influence, or I should say a great uh, person to talk to. Garrick Hagen and Helen Lloyd, she is a great producer and she's been very encouraging. A book that's really helped me with directing, although it's designed for the raters, the book that, a book that's really helped me is Storyteller by Lorelai King and Ali Murden. And I'd love to get in contact with them. And there are other people I'd love to speak to in the industry, such as um, Jonathan Keeble. He's a great guy. Yeah. But one person I'd, I would love to say thank you to is Tamsin Collison. She was a great director. And she taught me a few tricks when I was on the Showreels uh, audiobook company the, the showreels audiobook workshop she was a great person to uh, to help with and uh, I, I, there are some of the raters i'd love to work with as well such as sarah ovens as I said jonathan keeble and uh uh sean barrett i'd love to work with him and i just i'd just like to get more in contact with people in the industry in people such as a shet or or Harper Collins. It'd be great to work with people from there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if there's anyone listening to the podcast with connections with those people, let's try and do what the internet does best and uh, get a hold. And maybe we can have a a little, you know, a clubhouse meeting, or you know, have them join some sort of forum or something, and we can try and make that happen. But yeah, I agree with all those names actually. Um, and that book you mentioned that's helped me personally. Um, a tremendous amount. I think it's a fantastic book uh, for narrators and anyone who uh, is interested in audiobook production as a whole. It's a just a brilliant book. It's great. I mean, I remember listening to to it and thinking 
this is gold dust. <laughs> I, and I remember Lorelai King from other things I've heard because uh, she's uh, she's so famous. I, I'd, lo- I'd be honoured to speak to her. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> with um, with all the news, um, it can be a, a little bit doom and gloom. But with all the news about AI and and text to speak and all those other you know go- the thing that Google's doing, um, are you hopeful about the future of our industry? Well, it's interesting you mention that because I use AI for speech all the time mm. because I have to. Of course, in fact, yeah. I've been using it since the late 90s. In fact, using text-to-speech to read things is nothing new. Yeah. In fact, it's been, it's been going on ever since Dennis Klatt and Ray Kurzweil brought out the Kurzweil system with Dennis Klatt's deck talk system because Dennis Klatt created deck talk for reading things and and Ray Kurzweil developed his Kurzweil reading machine. Mm. So AI to read things is nothing new. To me, AI doesn't have a future in audiobooks because although it's good for listening to things, it's not good for long form listening. And in fact, it takes up a lot of processing power. And there are two types of text to speech. There's the text to speech that's done based on samples of a human voice Mm -hmm. and there's text-to-speech that's been made straight from the ground up that's been done through software coding or hardware coding or I should say hardware electronics now the thing about these synthesizers is that natural speech although it's good to listen to a lot of serious speech users find that it's not very customizable so it sounds unintelligible at fast speeds and a lot of audiobook users will listen at one and a half times the speed. And some even listen at twice the speed. Yeah. And AI, when it comes to sample-based text-to-speech, it doesn't work. Whereas if you're listening to a synthetic speech that's made from the ground up, or I should say a formant-based or rules-based synthesizer, it's much more intelligible. And so there's also the question of the fact that Sample-based speech takes up a lot of processing power. Mm. In fact, if you try and download voices for the iPhone or the iPad, you'll find that the more natural voices are several hundred megabytes, whereas the voices Fred and Victoria at the time of recording, which are the classic Mac voices, are only one or two megabytes. Oh, right. So AI has its place, and it's fine for doing things such as reading your emails, or reading bank statements or confidential information. So I don't have a problem with that, but it's not good for audiobook reading. I mean, who wouldn't want, say, Martin Jarvis as your synthesizer for your screen reader reading out your bank statement? Or Jonathan Jonathan Davis reading out your text from your girlfriend? (laughs) I would love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fully with you on that one. Yes, but of course, that is a good use of AI. Yeah. But of course, the as I said, it's all about moderation, as with most things in life. There are good parts to it and bad parts to it. I think that, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, that's really interesting to hear your take on it. And I, yeah, I agree with you completely, actually. Um, we just have time for one more question. And Samuel, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, to finish us off, 
Is there any upcoming projects, anything approaching in the diary that you're excited about? Perhaps a project we can look forward to? There's nothing coming up, but I would love if we could actually do more. I'd love to actually get in contact with people and do more networking. If there are Mm. any networking events for people in the industry in the UK that are in person, please let me know and I'd love to come. Yeah, I second that. I second that because the uh, there's so much stuff going on in the states, isn't there? So many, you know, narrator workshops and and just production workshops and 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 meet and greets and things happening all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to not get a little bit envious of the uh, yeah of the fantastic groups that are meeting up out there. And I'm not prepared to fork out a thousand quid to go to the no. US, especially as I'd need someone with me. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, if there's anyone listening who is having a meet and greet, or maybe we could even plan one ourselves, um, maybe we could do a Sunday schmooze meetup or something, that'd be great fun. Um, then uh, we should definitely, you should definitely get in touch and we can see what we can do. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode, Samuel, and, and, and taking the time out of your day. It's, be, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Same here. So that just about does it for the episode of the Audiobook Club. All of the relevant links to social media accounts and websites, websites, etc. Um, will be linked in the description in the show notes. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. And another huge thank you to Samuel for joining us. You're welcome. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening.